Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Sean Tuffy, a banker who has worked at State Street, Brown Brothers Harriman and City. His specialist area is regulatory and markets intelligence, particularly relating to the funds and asset management business. There are so many entities involved in regulating finance and the new area of cryptocurrencies that it's hard to see the wood for the trees. So that's what we try to do during the next half hour. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it on your listening platform and share it with a friend or colleague. You can support New Money Review on Patreon. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and type in New Money Review. Even a small monthly contribution helps me run the site. Sean, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself, your background, your area of work? Hi, Paul. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Sean Tuffy. Um, I've worked in what I would say is the back office's back office for the last 20 years. So fund administration and custody. Um, And for the last 12 years, I have been um, tracking the sort of the impact of global financial regulation on the asset management industry. Great. Um, You've been also quite prolific on Twitter. I enjoy following you on there. You have some very interesting and often funny comments about the crazy world of crypto. Let's start with that and uh, and the recent um, FTX collapse. Um, Now, what impact do you think um, that particular exchange failure is going to have on financial regulation as a whole? Yeah, so I think obviously the the big story in crypto land the last couple of months has been FTX. And I think its impact is probably we're still working through it. Um, because obviously, the, you know, bankruptcy and fraud proceedings are, are moving ahead. But I think what it what the initial impact um, will be is possibly sort of a reassessment or course correction uh, for policymakers around how to approach the regulation uh, of crypto currencies um, and digital assets generally. Um, and I think that you were starting to see that already in some of the policy debates that are coming out. And this is predominantly, I, w- I would say, more so in the US, um, which is a little behind Europe in terms of coming up with a framework uh, for crypto. So I think what we're really going to see is, as an algorithm of FTX is a, a couple of things, sort of a general questioning of what is the best approach um, to regulating crypto. Um, and then I think um, sort of probably, especially in the US, some, some quick movement on creating a regulatory framework in certain places. Let's let's turn to Sam Bankman-Fried in particular. Um, it, it's been a strange thing to follow for me, at least uh, on, you know, that he, he, he wasn't arrested immediately after the chapter 11 filing of the, Bahamian entity and the US entity. He was, you know, out, out and at, at liberty for a while. Then he was arrested. Then he was extradited to the US. I mean, if we compare it with the Bernie Madoff story, I've been following the Madoff um, documentary on Netflix. So he was, he had FBI agents in his office the next day after um, the, the fraud was uncovered. And he was let out on bail, but then eventually sentenced to 150 years in, in prison. And he ended up dying in in federal prison a couple of years ago. I mean, do you think the authorities in the US have got the the balance right in terms of how they're handling it? Bankman-Fried is out on bail. It's a bigger bail than Madoff had, $250 million, but apparently not all of it has been 
well, not much of it, if any, has been paid in cash. Um, do you think they're, and he's still tweeting away, trying to justify himself. You know, it's a, it's a different world <laughs> compared to 2008. There was no yeah. uh, Twitter then, but and Madoff uh, um, was not kind of trying to justify what he did. But, you know, it feels feels odd, doesn't it, sometimes watching what's going on? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple things to unpick, and it definitely feels odd, um, you know, especially that sort of, month six six week window where uh, spf was out and about um well sort of seemingly um you know the, the fraud became very obvious to everyone but i think one thing's important to remember with the madoff comparison um is that madoff turned himself in essentially so once once madoff realized his ponzi scheme was up um and he couldn't keep it going he he went he marched down to you know the FBI and turned himself in. So that's why justice seemed much swifter in that case. He didn't right. deny it. He turned himself in, and that's why you know the FBI was there the next day. Charges were ran, and he pled, pled guilty. So it seems much swifter now. Obviously, SPF just decided to go a different route. He so um, in the absence of someone you know turning themselves in, it takes time to sort of build cases. So I think it's I think it's a little unfair that everyone and i've done it myself has sort of compared it to the the madoff case in that way it just it it's, it takes a little longer especially when you have a defendant who's you know as is his right uh protesting his innocence so i think mostly it, it's it, it's still gone pretty quickly um in the grand scheme of things if you look at sort of from early november when everything started to unravel to sort of being extradited before uh before christmas so i, I think it's sort of it has no swiftly, but in this sort of age, as you alluded to, social media and he, you know, SPF is still out there. It seemed it seemed a little different, right? And 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 it's incredible. It's an incredibly complex uh, bankruptcy. There was an article I think last week in the Economist that pointed out that there are, um, you know, a typical corporate insolvency has, you know, a few dozen creditors. In the case of FTX, there are over nine million creditors. Uh, and 134 insolvent entities in in 27 countries around the world. So, the bankruptcy um, courts have got a very, and the federal regulators have got a very tough job, kind of establishing what's true. Uh, we've we've already heard the, you know, FTX's record keeping described as kind of breathtaking chaos, um, and <laughs> we've still got Bankman Fried. You know, attempting another version on an Excel spreadsheet of, uh, to try and yeah, it's, it's quite a, quite an incredible. I mean, if anyone who's been who's worked in finance, the idea that you can move this much money around without the very kind of basic record keeping is kind of incredible. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, it's definitely sort of surreal from that angle. And I think, and obviously, the bankruptcy. Um, there are two, I mean, everything is linked to the sort of the alleged fraud uh, and malfeasance. So obviously, but. Even absent that, um, I think the bankruptcy of uh, FTX would have proven incredibly challenging, as you said, because, and we've seen this with other um, crypto firms that have gone bankrupt, um, that sort of a feature of the way everything is designed is that sort of if you're a deposit, what, you know, in traditional finance would be considered a client or depositor, you're not, you're essentially an unsecured creditor the way the, the way the crypto world has set up. And that's how you end up with millions and millions of sort of unsecured creditors as opposed to sort of millions and millions of clients just looking to get their money back. And that really complicates things when you're looking uh, at bankruptcy proceedings. And then obviously it's further exacerbated by the sort of, you know, the 
the fraudulent alleged fraudulent activity and the sort of trying to track down where all the money um is and you know the the ftx empire as it was you know the 150 something um subsidiaries and companies that sort of the opacity was part of the the strategy so it's very hard to sort of unpick all of that so i think you know even without the sort of the alleged fraud um happening unpicking these firms has proven really challenging um just by the way they're established yeah I mean, that, that economist article that um i i just referred to and you you linked to on twitter a, a few days ago um in that the the economist kind of made the argument i think that bankruptcy law on the u.s courts you know they have yet to complete a significant crypto restructuring no one can agree what crypto is that they don't fit in crypto tokens don't necessarily fit in with property law uh, you know what from your perspective is the is the bankruptcy regime adequate to deal with what's gone on at, at a at a, a failed exchange like ftx yeah so i think this is sort of links back to actually where we open up about talking about the future of regulation so there I mean, my view is, I mean, the short answer is yes. I, I think bankruptcy law um, is well established to deal with this. It's just a lot messier. And and I think blaming the bankruptcy regime for not being able to handle the way the businesses deliberately set themselves up is a little unfair. And I think when you look at, how, you know, the regulation of crypto, be it the bankruptcy part or be the, you know, the front end FinReg part, one of the big debates that's happening now, as I'm sure you know, is, you know, do we need specific regimes for crypto and digital assets, you know, bespoke regulatory regimes, or can they fit um, in the the existing frameworks with, you know, minor modifications? And I think I stand on the side of the fence that says most of what happens in crypto land can be covered by existing regulation. And if you sort of don't get distracted by the technology and the sort of magic internet money part of it, but there's really no reason you can't apply uh the existing frameworks and the example i always use is that you know securities traditional securities stocks and bonds have dematerialized in the last 30 40 years and we didn't have to rewrite securities law to cover that so there's no reason just because something exists on a distributed ledger that it can't be covered by securities law so i think what you're seeing out of ftx because there was a big push in the us to create sort of specific regulatory regimes somewhat entirely you know what you know sdf was lobbying for himself is a reassessment do you need specific regimes or can you just apply the existing ones and i think that's sort of one of the fundamental debates out there and i i sort of err i i went on the side that you know for the most part 90 odd percent of it can be covered by existing securities law and it's just sort of a will to enforce it more than anything else right i just i'm i've written a bit about this on the site and and I, in an interview a couple of years ago with Kathleen Moriarty, who sadly recently passed away, um, I asked her about you know whether we needed some kind of new rules for the crypto market, given that after the, I mean, she she drew the drew the parallels between the cryptomania and the nineteen late nineteen twenties Wall Street bubble, and and of course after the nineteen twenty nine Wall Street crash, the federal government and the U.S. brought in a lot of new rules. Uh, Including the Securities Act, the Investment Companies Act, um, that were aimed at, you know, reducing the risks of investors being cheated by insiders and brokers stealing people's assets, investment funds trading for themselves ahead of their customers. 
So those rules were all brought in because of perceived failings in the system in the in the twenties. Um, so I mean, it, it, is it, isn't it an open question whether we need something new for the crypto markets? Because it, you know they are harder to regulate. It's harder to pin down where people are located. In the case of um, you know, the, you know the, the the crypto market, we've just seen some people involved in the three arrows capital. Uh, collapse last year, launching a new venture, and yet they're still being sought after by creditors of their previous venture. No one knows where they're located physically. Um, you know, it's a different world, isn't it? It's a. Do we need something different for for crypto? Right. And so, I mean, I guess I would always say it's a different world. Yes and no. I mean, it is different, um, but the difference is, I mean, and I'm sort of paraphrasing both Gary Gensler, the current um, SEC chair, and Jay Clayton, the previous one, have essentially said. Um, that, you know, the crypto industry has towed this line that they need new regulation because it's new and different. And they keep saying there is regulation and they object to the existing regulation because they feel they should get different treatment. And I guess the question is, you know, to your example of you don't know where people are located, but you know where clients are located, you know where customers are located, and you know where investors are located. And so you can regulate the entry points of the financial system which is essentially what the strategy was to date, right? So the reason, you know, FTX is, you know, this massive implosion and apparent financial fraud has had no, has had fewer real world repercussions because essentially regulators walled it off from entering the, you know, the traditional financial system. So the question is what in, you know, part of financial regulation is investor protection and part of financial regulation is sort of facilitating the format formation of capital. And so what it's not clear to me, and I think a lot of people struggle with this, and you know, the ECB wrote a paper about this uh, a few weeks ago, like one, you get under the hood of crypto, beyond numbers go up and you know the, the, the sort of more casino element of it, what formation of capital is actually happening that needs to be facilitated? And I think that's the open question. Mm-hmm. So to, to return to your question, you know, should regulators regulate crypto or as some people have argued, just let it burn to the ground and then see what see what happens? Um, you know, where do you stand on that question? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think I go back and forth on this and I think, you know, I, I sort of continue to evolve. I think my view and I, I sort of laid this out a few weeks ago is that there's probably two ways forward. There's the let it burn down or there's a sort of apply securities law. And make everyone adhere to it. And so, and if they choose not to, let it continue to burn out. And I think that's probably where I stand. I think, you know, when we get to the end of this, um, you know, if you want to be a crypto exchange, you need to actually be an exchange. And I think those are, you know, not a broker dealer with a, a different name. And I think, I think the problem is that Crypto, as you know, sort of started off, you know, way back when with, you know, the initial Bitcoin paper as sort of a, let's set up a new financial system Mm -hmm. um, outside of traditional finance. And, you know, when you have that sort of mentality, it lends itself to a a certain amount of lawlessness. So if you want crypto to exist, you need to exist within laws. And I think what regulators probably need to do is let the existing, like I would find it hard to believe that you know, FTX is the end of the story when it comes to sort of fraudulent activity and scams. So do you let those scams burn out um, while creating sort of a framework for the future? And where I really stand on that is back to my point about, you know, capital formation, um, 
and making sure that why, you know, what's the purpose of regulating? Because the danger is by creating sort of a regulatory approval um, that you will then draw more retail and real economy participants into the crypto markets. And, you know, we need to make sure that's something we want to have happen. And so when you think about, you know, if a, if a company wants to issue stocks on the blockchain, sure, but there's no reason you can't apply securities law to that and that they would need its own set of laws. And then how do you treat sort of cryptocurrency and token trading? And I think there's a debate still to be had about is that gaming or is that, are those really securities? And I increasingly think it's more gaming than securities. Um, so if you set up a token or a cryptocurrency that doesn't meet the standard of, you know, standard set of, you know, rules for qualify as a security. I mean, you're doing that intentionally. And so why should that be given sort of a new regulatory status and not just moved into sort of a, a more gaming like regulation? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who say that it's gaming or gambling. It should be treated by gambling laws. You know, ad, the ads should be treated like gambling ads, which are quite heavily circumscribed in in some markets, not necessarily in others. But at the same time, you've got some senior people at traditional financial institutions saying, you know, they, they, they're kind of sounding very bullish about the tokenization trend. And Larry Fink of BlackRock said a few days ago that the, the future of markets is tokenization. So that some of those very large asset management firms are talking about digital assets and tokenization is the way forward. Is that is that something separate or is that, uh, you know, are we in danger of mixing the two things and allowing the current kind of un, you know, maybe unhappy status quo just to continue for a while? Yeah, I mean, so I think when people talk about tokenization, it's sort of the, the classic, you know, I don't like crypto, but I think blockchain is interesting argument, which yeah, blockchain, is, not is an argument. Yeah, it's, yeah. Right. And so I think, when you talk about tokenization um, and, you know, you want to start tokenizing securities, um, which is quite honestly just a different form of digital securities. I mean, one of the things we kind of forget and gets lost because, as you said, it gets jumbled with the sort of more speculative gaming element of it is that securities today are digital assets. I mean, you know, you, you don't get shares. Yeah, that, 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 always, that always kind of drives me nuts, the term digital assets, because, you know, as, right. you, as you said, it's been, the, the securities have been digitized or digitalized since the 1970s 1980s in most markets and uh right and so they're not they're not we're not talking about paper share certificates anymore or paper you know euro bond certificates uh, which we were until the 60s or 70s but they're not they've they've been digitized for a long time right exactly and that's sort of like you know like i mean to make a pop culture reference the entire plot of die hard you know, where Hans Gruber stealing the bear bonds doesn't even make sense yeah. anymore yeah. because he can't do that. But like, I think, so when you talk about tokenization, you're talking about having your dematerialize your securities record keeping in a different technology. So rather than using current technology, you're saying we want to use distributed ledger or blockchain. And that's fine. And I don't think there's any, like, I mean, I would argue it's probably not worth the effort, but, you know, to each their own. But I don't think if you're saying we're going to start just so 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 stop you there for a second, Sean. You don't think it's worth the effort switching from the the current system where equities and bond trades settle in a couple of days to something that's a little bit quicker? I mean, is is that what you're talking about, or you, you in what ways? So do you I'm think thinking it's not a, worth a little both. I mean, yeah. I think so. The question is, you know, do you want your record keeping securities on the current infrastructure, DTCC, yeah. you know, in the US or wherever, what have you? 
or do you want to put your securities in a you know a very simple way on the on the blockchain and have it sort of recorded that way? And I would argue, you know, I'm not sure tokenizing shares of a company on the blockchain or shares of a bond on the blockchain gives companies that much, but like it's not. It's you know it's sort of it's I don't think it's a huge step forward, but I can see the why people would push for it. But mm. in that way, if you're essentially taking traditional securities and digitizing them in a new way, there's really no reason you can't apply existing securities regulation to that. And you don't really need, there's nothing particularly novel about that beyond the underlying tech. So then the question becomes, where regulators I think are going to look first, and you know, you see this in the in the EU's existing you know, rules that are sort of all but finalized, and you see this in the US, is the first step is, you know, you look at, for example, like a stable coin regulation, and how do you do you need to create a specific set of rules for stable coins um, if you're going to sort of accept that they are, are sort of a mode of payment mm. for the future? Or do you just treat them like money market funds and apply similar regulations? Yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. And I think if you look at what's been proposed, one of the things, you know, it's always important to remember is that like poly regulators, you know, macro potential regulators in particular, banking regulators, really don't like money market funds. Like they, they, we've spent the last 12 years or so tightening up the regulations around money market funds after uh, sort of very notable blowouts in 2009 um, and to a lesser extent, 2020 during the, the COVID yeah. volatility. So, but, you know, money market funds are actually an, an apt comparison because they exist essentially because of a regulatory arbitrage opportunity that dates back to you know the 60s and 70s yeah where in the u.s there was regulation q that you know prevented demand deposits from getting uh interest and it you know it capped how much interest a bank could pay so people created an asset management vehicle that could you know mimic bank accounts but provide higher interest and get corporates interest and that's sort of where the market took off from and i think when you look at what they, the stablecoin proposals, they're very keen to avoid that mistake again. So, you know, any proposal around stablecoin is very, if they are going to exist, you know, they essentially need to be just liquid, like tokenized liquidity pools, essentially, you know, 100% reserves, short term, you know, high quality short term debt, um, possibly issued, you know, depending on the version, looking at it has to be from a credit institution. So, really making them, um, very much as close as possible to sort of you know real sort of cash equivalents. I, I can I can understand that the people worried about the safety of the financial system are you know particularly concerned about that. But I, I find that hard that argument hard to square with the the lack of activity regarding let's say Tether, which has grown from you know it was at three billion dollars in assets in early 2020. It got to 80 billion last year during the yeah the peak of the mania. It's currently it hasn't. It hasn't died. It's had lots of scrutiny, but it's still there, uh, still, you know, not disclosing its assets. It's kind of weird, at least to me, the 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 inactivity from the authorities on that, or maybe they're just taking their time, like they are with some other crypto projects, to try and work out how to grapple with it. What, what, what do you think on that? Yeah, I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B. So I think you know, taking a look at these things and trying to unwind if there's any sort of real malfeasance or issues. I mean, this always takes time. You know, it's not, you don't sort of, it's easy for internet sleuths like myself and others on, you know, Twitter to say, this is obviously 
you know, a huge issue. You need to fix it. But like, the, you know, the legal reality is different. And then I think the other thing is, I think I honestly do think a lot of regulators, their argument was if, you know, you keep the banks out of this and you keep to the extent possible, a lot of retail money out of this, that this turns out to be a huge problem. It's not going to take down the financial system. And so they've done a reasonable job on that. But now the question is like, and I think they were kind of hoping it would go away, but it's not. So now how do you sort of unwind it or sort of corral it? And I think it's obviously a little hard to do um, once sort of the genie's out of the bottle. Yes. And then there's the question of the the political reach of some of these uh, newer crypto entities. Uh, there, There was an article earlier today that uh, reported uh, that more than one in three U.S. senators or representatives have taken money from FTX. It's quite an incredible figure. I mean, that's a, you know, more than a third of all the representatives of, Cong- of, of the people in Congress had, uh, had were on the payroll uh, of Sam Bankman-Fried. So, you know, they, they, there's a, you know, are the political institutions we have adequate to to supervise all this or are we putting too much uh responsibility on federal or other national or transnational regulators who don't have a political mandate. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, I mean, obviously, like the FTX scandal, um, and, you know, one of the more serious charges brought against FBF is honestly that sort of defrauding the US to election uh, law violation. That's a huge issue, and everyone should be really concerned about that. But like, I'm a pretty cynical person, but I'm not so nihilist as to believe like our democratic institutions can't handle this. So obviously, yeah, there's a concern um, about the amount of political lobbying that's happened. But if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, political lobbying happens in trad, you know, traditional finance too. It's yeah. not unheard of. So I think it, it's a really bad look when, you know, this relatively newcomer pumps a ton of money into the political system and it turns out to be a fraud. I mean, that's awful. No one, no one comes out looking good in that. And so obviously that's a real concern, but I don't think... The, you know, the democratic institutions are so irredeemable that they can't handle it. And I certainly don't think we should be, to your second point, you can't rely on technocratic institutions. I mean, you need to make sure that, you know, the rule of law is the rule of law. So I think, I, I think concerns are absolutely justified. You know, money, especially in the U.S., money sloshes around politics pretty um, grotesquely, some would say. But I, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's, you know, made it impossible beyond the wit of, you know, the institutions to regulate. Yeah. Let's turn to Europe for a second. Uh, you, you, yeah. you, you talked a lot about the U.S. market. Europe's got an incoming regulation on, on crypto assets. Um, you know, what, what's what's happening on, on this side of the Atlantic and how big an opportunity do you see here? You know, what, what particular things are you looking at when it comes to regulatory intelligence? Yeah, so right as you say, you and Europe. Um, so one of the trends, and actually, really where I got my my start looking at financial regulation was post the the GFC um, during what I sort of called the Great Re-regulation. Europe really took sort of what I would say is the global lead uh, on financial regulation in a number of areas, especially around sort of buy side markets and asset management. Um, and this is so, and so they were, you know, policymakers. Commission were very keen early on to start re- creating a regulatory framework um, for for crypto, much more so than I would argue almost anywhere else. So what they what's produced is all but approved and is expected to go live in 2024, though timing might 
slip of it is essentially a method for crypto. It's you know called uh, yeah. called MICA, and, and so I think people are still trying to. Like, there are two things that are happening with it, so people are still trying to digest what it means and essentially what it does is it creates it essentially creates as i said a method rules similar to method specific to crypto assets and you know categorize it as uh crypto or digital assets into four categories sets specific rules around stable coins and e-money um creates sort of harmonized authorization um so that sort of depending on who you talk to i think real true believers in crypto still think it's too restrictive I think more institutional investors that you alluded to before will probably take comfort in the existence uh, of these rules if they want to start moving in, into the space. Um, and I think, so that's where we are sort of with the, with the MICA. And I think, but we are seeing sort of everything roots back to FTX at some level, some questioning around, for example, you know, FTX had an authorized subsidiary in uh, Cyprus. Yes. Um, and so one of the things that is sort of a constant, you know, the EU is a single market and it's not at the same time. It relies heavily on national member states. Um, and so I think we will see a lot of questioning around authorization of firms and sort of jurisdictions and ensuring that there are people sort of shopping around for lighter touch Um regulators and it's you know which is which is arguably already the case in in some areas of fintech you've got people you know firms being getting authorization or being regulated or set up as banks in certain eu countries and then and then operating across the region and there are some concerns about whether that's an adequate framework 100 percent. like this this issue is not you know is not particularly new i mean it's it's the issue of you know, and everyone likes to pick on Cyprus and Malta and, and some of the other smaller countries around sort of being inadequate gatekeepers into the single market. And so I think the FTX issue will bring this forward, but it's, you know, it's worth pointing out that, for example, Binance was all, was sort of France rolled out the red carpet for them and did, we without sort of full authorization being yes. required and sort of a lighter test regime. So, I mean, I think... It's, you know, when you look at Europe, everyone got a little, not everyone, but a lot of places got crypto mad and wanted to be the first ones in the door. And I think when you look at, if I were to play amateur psychologist, part of the issue is you look at, you know, traditional asset management, single market with the use of its fund structure was created and essentially Ireland and Luxembourg came to dominate the space. And I think there's always been a sense that from bigger states that that should never been allowed to happen so they want to they wanted to be the sort of the first mover to become the sort of the center of gravity for and the uk and the uk and the uk missed out on that that uh you know huge shift of funds business to dublin and luxembourg right. and and, th- and they've and been because, spending like yeah and you can and they're also making you know rishi sunak and several government ministers are making the argument that they want to be the crypto asset hub of the future i mean it's a it's a they have to it's a very t- tricky line to Straddle, isn't it, for the for the for the politicians and governments? Yeah, absolutely. To, if they want yeah, to get the right really... kind of firms coming in, but and, and not to encourage another collapse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you saw. I think what we've seen is that you know there's a lot of FOMO of fear of moving, missing out among politicians and policymakers. And I think and the other thing is you touched on the other dynamic in Europe is obviously we have this European rule set coming in, but the UK. Um, in a post-Brexit world is going to try to, it's going to set up its own rules. And so, yes. so I think that will be something that, you know, 
we should will be interesting to see where those go. Right. Yeah. And yeah. what that means, because, you know, one thing when the UK tries to modify its rules around asset management or funds, it kind of hardly matters because everyone has to deal with Europe anyway. But crypto is a little different because it's a little newer, but yes. they could sort of they could create a incentive to move the center of gravity to the UK. Mm. So, on you know, on your desk, looking forward to the to the year ahead to 2023, you know, what what's what's top of your mind? What, what are you focusing on, you know, across the broader funds, fintech, crypto markets? So what's what's uh, preoccupying you or what's most interesting for you? Yeah, I mean, I think we've touched a lot on crypto. And obviously, I think what will be the on this side of the Atlantic, the two things to really watch are what happens in the UK. Is it seeks to develop its own framework. What happens to MICA? Are there, are there last minute changes? Are there delays? I mean, EU regulation only goes one way, so I don't see it being reversed. But are there changes in philosophy? And then in the US, you know, I think there will be a lot more talk, a lot of talk about what we talked about, you know, let it burn down and do nothing. But I, I don't see a world where that happens. So I think, you know, really tracking probably stable coin regulation first and then um, what follows after that. On the more traditional finance side, um, you know, really looking at it's the so ESG continues to be ESG regs in the EU, in the US, or really sort of be deviling sort of traditional asset managers. And that's something trying to keep, keep a handle on for U.S. asset managers, the Gary Gensler and the SEC is going through what I like to sort of a bit of a European moment. It's a lot like it was 10, 12 years ago where there's, you know, 40, 50 pieces of open regulation floating around. Um, yeah. So trying to sort of navigate what I've sort of preparing for hurricane Gary is what I phrase it. You know, there's going to be a flurry of activity this year that's going to set the course for regulation on the buy side. And that stretches all the way from market infrastructure, settlement times that, you know, we talked about briefly about moving from T plus two to T plus one, all the way to sort of like fund sales promotion. So there's a huge body of work for the U.S. asset management industry. And, you know, it's half, the world's largest capital market. It's going to have ripple effects on managers everywhere. Right, right. And crypto is going to continue to generate some interesting stories, headlines, personalities. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> some... <laughs> So we'll, we'll all be busy on Twitter if Elon Musk doesn't uh, run it into the ground. Uh, we'll have to find another <laughs> right. platform. But uh, all right, Sean, thank you very much for a very interesting chat. It's been great to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Paul. Great to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.